right, good evening, good to see everybody. It's always easier on day two having uh, had the chance to connect with each of you a little bit. Um, maybe you feel it even more sometimes. It's like you feel like you're getting more and more in the retreat, dropping in a little bit more. Uh, so tonight's talk is called The Courage to Be, which is also a title of a book of an author I mentioned last night, Paul Tillich, who I think this book was written in the early 50s. Uh, really a reflection on life and uh, a reflection on courage. And I think that um, courage is actually a word that you see a lot in the early Buddhist tradition. And that's a word you don't hear a lot around here, I don't find. And I somehow think that's a bit of a drag because courage is such a great thing. And we know what the word means. It's a very kind of beautiful word. It's an important word. It's something that we probably all aspire to have. Uh, and it's, it's certainly in the, in the early tradition. It, it's, it's, it's shown in this word. It's actually a word that shows up quite a lot in quite of a lot of the predominant list called virya. And virya uh, is usually translated as energy, which I always thought was a bit of a lazy translation because... I can put all kinds of energy into all kinds of fruitless things, and, and I do. I'm sure you do as well. <laughs> so energy doesn't really necessarily have a positive connotation to it, but the word courage really does. Um, and that's really the word, I think, that captures um, in large what we do in this practice. Um, and I believe there's no greater courage than the courage uh, to be willing to embrace the suffering of your own life. As I kind of talked about last night, that's the existential dimension of the practice and uh, how much courage it takes to just be willing to actually sit down and, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, to deal with the mind. It's a serious, serious thing. I definitely don't take this lightly. Uh, and it's um, quite a profound thing to undertake. Of all the things one could do in the world and all the things one could do for a week, this is a, an odd choice. Right? So to just give you a little bit of the lay of the land of this word where it shows up. So it shows up as viria. Uh, which kind of translates as courage or energy, uh, willingness. Uh, there's another term, vayama, which is the term for effort. So I'll talk about a lot about that tonight. There's a teaching on right effort as part of the Eightfold Path, as part of the, the meditative training factors in the Buddhist tradition start with this teaching of right effort, and the word is vayama. Uh, and there's also another word called padina, which means like willingness or endeavor or maybe even application. So, you know, to some degree we could look at it in, in an overarching sense of courage, effort, but also in, in the moment-by-moment moment experience, as you've probably seen today, there is actually a little bit of effort, a little bit of maybe courage, a little bit of probably energy, a little bit of willingness, moment by moment to really make the adjustment to your attention, to make an adjustment to the attitude, 
to be willing to wait for the bell to ring before you get up because your legs are tired, right? So like we're almost having to work with it moment by moment. So it's something that's kind of readily available. Uh, and sometimes I don't feel like I have it. Right? Sometimes I just want to go to sleep or I want to check out. So when you look at the, um, the Buddhist path, they use this word path, maga, which again I think is a little bit of a tricky word because the word path for me, when I, when I hear the word path, that to me that implies or I assume I'm going to get to a trailhead destination and there's going to be a path that's just neatly laid out and I'm just going to follow, follow the path and get to my destination. And I don't think this is really, really works that way. You know, have, you, have you seen a clear path today yet? Have you seen a direction to aim the mind? Let's go that way. Right? It's, really almost, it's really more to me like somebody's dropping you off at the bottom of a hill with a machete, and they're saying, yeah, I'll chop that way. It's more how it feels. So this word path sounds so kind of easy and nice, but the reality of the matter is it's not much of a path at all. Right? And so what we're probably really getting, what the Dharma offers us is, is a kind of, a more of a big framing of how we might want to navigate our life. Right? So it's not really a path as much as it's a framework for living. Uh, that's pretty precise, pretty elaborate, uh, and is also multidimensional. So the first kind of frame that we get is a philosophical frame, uh, a frame where we are getting these ideas of, um, you know, life is pretty hard. You, you know you're going to get sick. You know you're going to get old. You know you're going to die. You know you're going to lose things. That, that, that's actually built into the frame. And that philosophical frame also is, again, it's paradoxical because it's both. You know, life is both, a, can and is a beautiful experience a lot of the time. And it is and can be very tragic a lot of the time. And it's a really kind of a mixed bag. And you wake up every day, let's be honest, you don't really know what you're going to get. You don't really know what the day is going to bring. I know you have a calendar and a schedule in your phone that you adhere to, but there's a lot of stuff that's not on the calendar. Right? And we know that, but we don't really, we kind of ignore that, I think, a little bit. I know that I do. So we're getting this philosophical frame of life. It's, it's this both-end experience. Um, and we get these parameters around, you know, uh, the, what I talked a little bit last night about these four truths, as they're called. Um, you know, there is this kind of empty, difficult nature, dukkha of experience, the suffering of life that's going to happen, uh, and then our reaction to that. And that's really kind of where we're going to go this evening, is that looking at that second truth. And the third truth, really, is, is like, so it's not what causes, we could say what causes suffering, that's usually how it's delivered. And partly that's true. But probably more likely what happens is not what causes suffering, but what blocks happiness. And we use these words, hindrances. What, what gets in the way of me living the life that I want to live? Turns out lots of things. 
turns out I get in my own way. And so we're really trying to maybe flip the script on that a little bit and thinking about it more as like, we're not trying to uproot these causes of suffering, but we're trying to overcome the obstacles or the hindrances of well-being. And some people would argue and say, oh, Dave, you're just splitting hairs. You're more or less saying the same thing. And I don't think that I am. Because I think the frame, the philosophical frame that we're being offered in the Dharma is actually one of optimism, one of hope, one of courage, one of uh, resilience. I don't, I don't think it's a pessimistic frame. And oftentimes Buddhism gets kind of uh, categorized that way. Like, oh, they're all just about suffering and gloom and... and uh, and that's not the story. That's not the end of the story by any stretch. And so when you look at, so again, we have, we have a philosophical frame. Um, there's also an ethical frame, a frame of how we might want to behave, which is rooted in you know, harmlessness, trying to not cause harm, trying to be honest, careful with our sexuality, careful with substances. There's lots of like really ethical parameters that are really, really helpful. And that's actually, and I'll talk more about this in a bit, but that's really what sits at the root of the whole project is, is an ethical dimension. And then, of course, there's a contemplative dimension. There's a dimension where we're really uh, starting to maybe wake up to the fact or accept the fact or at least begin to acknowledge the fact that really our primary hindrance, our primary obstacle to everything is our own mind. That's ground zero. That's where everything emerges from. And it's really easy and really, really convenient to blame our childhood, to blame the circumstances of our life, the conditions of our life, the world that we live in. If you're looking for a scapegoat, choose away. Right? But first of all, that's not going to be helpful. Even if you're right, you're wrong. Uh, and so it's really kind of that radical responsibility of like really like maybe accepting like, okay, like the problem really starts here, right? And, and, and to take that on, to take one's mind on as a project is a very courageous task. Right? And we really have to concede, or concede rather, to the fact that, okay, I, I, I see that I'm in my own way much of the time. Right? And it puts the focus internally, trying to develop these internal resources rather than trying to control and manipulate and avoid uh, the external demands of life. Because the external demands of life are going to more or less be what they are. Right? But that's a very different frame than you've probably been given. So we have a philosophical way of looking at things. Uh, we have a contemplative way of looking at things and we have an ethical way of looking at things. It's kind of a lot of things. But at least it gives us some sense of, you know, at least we know where to start chopping. Right? We have a sense of where this is maybe heading. And interestingly enough, when you look uh, at the, the Buddha's most basic definition of the path, we know that it's kind of the, the eightfold path. But when he breaks it down in the earliest tradition, his most basic definition that we see of the work that we're trying to do here is to, uh, is to develop or to cultivate the wholesome and to, um, to overcome or to abandon the unwholesome. 
plain and simple. And um, so let's just talk about that for a little bit because I think the word wholesome and unwholesome sometimes have a problematic, almost a moralistic overtone to them or undertone to them that I want to kind of uh, remove. So the words that you find are kusala and akusala. Sometimes they're translated, so they're kind of pairs. You know, there's, it, it can be wholesome or unwholesome. Probably the one that's most helpful is one that's used a lot in this tradition, which would be skillful and unskillful, which I think is kind of better. We want to do things that are skillful, things that are unskillful. Um, or we would even say emotional intelligence has a different angle on it, which I think is actually quite good, a constructive and destructive. Is this a constructive way of moving forward, or is this a destructive way? And so, however you, whatever word you want to use, it's fine. You kind of understand the territory I'm pointing at. But what, what, so what's the criteria for what makes it wholesome or unwholesome? Well, wholesome mind states, wholesome behaviors, are ones that um, are conducive and support the well-being of myself and are conducive and support the well-being of others. Pretty simple. So if I'm through, through, through speech, through thoughts, through actions, if that behavior, if that inclination is supportive of my happiness and other people's happiness and well-being, then, then I should cultivate that and I should support that and I should develop that. And if it is not conducive to my own happiness and not conducive to the happiness of others, I should probably let that go. Overcome that, abandon that. Right? And so, that's, so, that, so really actually what sits at the bottom of that is an ethical framework. Um, and really maybe even more simply put, um, this word sila in the Buddhist tradition, which is sometimes translated as morality. It's not really morality. That's, I think, a, a dangerous word. Um, because the Buddha is not really interested in a list of things or activities that one should or should not do. He doesn't really do this moralistic finger-wagging at us like that. There's, not a, there's really actually no thou shot not for the most part, which a lot of us growing up in America, whether you grew up in the church or didn't grow up in the church, you probably got introduced to those ideas somewhere along the way. So we have to make sure it's not really about that so much. Ethics is maybe a better word. And really probably the best word is integrity. So how do I live in line with my own sense of integrity? And you know what, that's very personal. And I think we need to take some autonomy and some ownership around integrity to my values. Uh, and so that's really what sila is, the ethical dimension of the practice is, is how much discipline do I have towards my own integrity? And really, other people can call me out on that a little bit, but really I have to be willing to kind of call myself out on my bad behavior, right? Which is not always uh, easy. And you know, when you do something you know you should have done, you know, don't you? We feel guilty, we feel ashamed, we feel regretful. It's not worth it. So that's really where the kind of having some kind of discipline to our own sense of values and integrity. Now probably all of us here have certain values that there's probably some overlap, some values that we share. 
But there's probably some values, I would ma imagine, that are pretty unique to you. There's probably a couple that you really feel uh, are important to you. And you'll probably notice when you're living and you're acting and you're speaking and behaving outside of those, you just kind of feel that. And when you are acting and thinking and behaving within those, you feel good. You feel happy, you feel more content. Right? So it's really uh, a feature of happiness as well. There's actually a lot of happiness and contentment to be had by adhering to your own sense of values. So you can think about them in these different ways. You can use any, any of these words that you like. And so to make it even a bit more complicated, as the Buddha does like to do, as you notice, he's, the tradition is very keen on lists, probably because they didn't have written word, and they, one of the easiest ways to remember things is to just list them out as a kind of mnemonic device. But then when you look at how right effort or the path factor of as we begin to engage the mind... Uh, so when you look at the meditative training or the contemplative training, you have um, effort, you have mindfulness, and you have usually what's called concentration, which is probably more actually like steadiness, keeping the mind steady. And those three really kind of work and they support each other. And it's interesting, I find, um, that when you hear talks and you hear mindfulness instructions or retreat instructions and vipassana at various centers and various retreats, you always kind of always end up getting a, a discussion or instructions on mindfulness and concentration. You usually don't hear about effort, which is odd because that's one of the three, and I think actually kind of the most helpful of the three. Because he's really saying this is the most fundamental aspect of the practice. And so he goes from two to four. And he, uh, so you have these four words, prevent, overcome, develop, and maintain. And so that is, how do I prevent unwholesome forces from arising in my mind? And that's the first question. How do, and how do you prevent that? How do I overcome or abandon destructive forces in my mind when they have arisen? How do you do that? Uh, how do I develop or cultivate wholesome states of mind. Uh, and if I have developed and cultivated a wholesome state of mind, how do I maintain that? Right. And so, on some level, this is kind of what you've been dealing with all day. Right. Uh, and I used to always be very confused because I, I've noticed and I've said, and you've probably recognized, that stuff just pops into my mind out of nowhere. Like, I don't know about you, but I have some pretty ugly stuff that just kind of pops in my mind. I'm like, God, really? Still? <laughs> and so the question is, well, how do you prevent that? I always thought that was odd. And ironically, the, the way that we prevent that is to live in line with our values. Like, I honestly can't tell you, I haven't done anything in a really, really long time that I feel really bad about. 
You know, sometimes I, I'm a little bit short with my kids or I'm a little bit impatient or a little bit demanding or I might make a kind of cutting comment. But that's about as bad as it gets. So, you know, also being in recovery, uh, you know, having spent much of the years of my life actually engaging in pretty obnoxious behavior, that actually there's a degree of contentment that arises from practice when we just sit down and we just don't have anything to feel bad about. Like you look at the recent past, you're like, eh, I actually feel pretty good about myself. I haven't really done, there's not a lot of regret, there's not a lot of guilt, there's not a lot of remorse. And that, so that's how we prevent those things. There's a discourse in the canon where the Buddha sort of, the Buddha actually doesn't get credited for being funny, but I think he was actually pretty funny where he talks about how hard it is to meditate after a long day of murdering and stealing and killing and burning villages to the ground and robbing banks. I mean, after doing that all day, you come home and you sit down and you just really have a hard time practicing and you feel so terrible about all the horrible things you've done, right? Most of us, I would imagine, don't deal with that kind of stuff. So, so to say all of that is to just kind of acknowledge that you are all already doing this anyway, right? Just by wanting to be a good person, wanting to you know, be more kind, be more aware, to more embody the values that we talk, around, talk about around here. You're already probably, what most of you are really well through that process. And so the good news is, as a result of that, uh, you've probably prevented a lots of things from arising. So that's kind of the first stage. The second and the third ones are the ones that we're really dealing with here on retreat, so I kind of want to unpack those. And so, overcoming destructive forces that arise in the mind, and developing wholesome forces that arise in the mind. So that's, that's a bit of a moment-to-moment drill. And so this is really well teased out. So on the, on the, on the battlefield, uh, the Dharma battlefield, basically what you have is you have five hindrances versus seven awakening factors. So you're up two. <laughs> right? You already have a two-player advantage in the game. And in the teachings on mindfulness, this is like really clearly laid out. This is very cl- laid out in great precision in the four, what's called the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is kind of mind proliferation concept ideas. And so basically what the Buddha is saying, uh, if you really just kind of want the straight nuts and bolts of this, is we're trying to recognize and overcome what are called the hindrances, the five hindrances. And we're trying to develop and maintain what are called the awakening factors. And so that's the entire task, the entire endeavor of what's known as the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And so this is really... This is kind of a big deal. You know, you, you could almost sum up the whole project to these two ideas. And they come from the, they come from the two, cultivate the wholesome, abandon the unwholesome, into the four, and then you have five against seven, right? And so you've seen these a little bit, so I'll kind of um, go through them. And so I really think, like, so the courage to take this on as, like, a project for life, I think, is very courageous. And 
and also when we think about where we live. You know, if you want to change the world, just change your mind. Because really, if you think about it, where do you live? You don't live in Bozeman, you know, or California, or wherever you think you live. You live in your mind. This is ground zero. Everything starts right here. And so you, if you change this, you'll actually change the world that you live in. And so I, I, can, I can totally testify to this because I, you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I experienced the world as a very scary, very unsafe, very unkind, very disconnected place. That was my experience and attitude of the world. Uh, I don't feel that way anymore. I don't experience the world that way at all anymore. I experienced the world as actually a fairly stable place and, uh, and, and, and a place where there's kindness and there's connection and there's optimism. I don't think the world's changed that much in the last 30 years. At all. I don't think... <laughs> maybe it's gotten worse. I don't know. But I don't experience it that way anymore because, because I've changed my mind. Right? And so this is like something to just think about for a moment. Like, do you, do you believe that? that even makes sense, right? And so then that kind of makes a lot of the work here a lot more maybe enthusiastic uh, or exciting or you're courageous, like, oh yeah, okay, I think I'll do that. Because that's what you can do. Right? You're not going to change the world. You know, maybe a little bit. Maybe there's been... 10 people in the last couple thousand years who have made a relatively large impact on the world. It's, no offense, but it's probably not going to be any of us. <laughs> right, so it's probably better for me to just focus on myself, one person at a time, as the Dalai Lama says. One person at a time. But first, I just want to speak metaphorically about these hindrances and awakening factors and where they fit in the project philosophically. So the hindrances are basically features of what's called the second noble truth, as most of you know, have been the cause of suffering is craving, which is, again, I think a problem. But, but really, the, the hindrances are just the word craving unpacked. And the metaphor for that is fire. So, the, so when the mind is, is, is hindered and the mind is caught up in craving and aversion and anxiety... The Buddha makes that analogy to the mind is sort of on fire. And so, so yes, there's probably a bit of suffering in that. I'm not going to you know, say that that's not true. Uh, that's certainly a bit of that. But it's not so much that as much as what's it, what's it keeping me from doing? It's hindering me. It's blocking me. It's a dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. That's why it's destructive. Destructive forces in the mind, they just don't go anywhere. They're samsaric which just means they go round and round and round. You ever be thinking about something? Just going round and round and just looping and looping and looping and getting nowhere but more and more frustrated? It's just destructive. It, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't know how to do anything but that. Craving and aversion, they only know how to do one thing. So back to it is what it does. What does craving do? Craving just wants things to be different. And it just keeps wanting things to be different. And it keeps wanting things to be different. Ironically, aversion sort of does the same thing. It wants 
Craving wants things to be different by acquiring something that would be better. Aversion wants things to be different by getting rid of something that's here. That's all they know how to do. That's what they do. And we get stuck in them. And we kind of just loop around them. And it's like, uh, it's just not conducive for us to live the lives that we want to live. So the second truth that kind of hindrances, craving, clinging is, uh, is the metaphor for fire. The third noble truth, so, so, the, so the metaphor is fire encapsulated in these, these five hindrances. Uh, the metaphor for the third noble truth, which is typically called as the end of suffering, but it's really actually the end of craving, uh, Nibbana, is just it's talked about as a cooling down. Nirvana just means to cool down, or actually literally means gone out. That's the literal translation. Nibbana is gone out. And what has gone out? The fires of the five hindrances or the fires of greed, hatred, and confusion. They have gone out. And now that they have gone out, I can get on with my life. Right? But what happened, you get on with your life, hours go by, day goes by, 30 seconds goes by, and what happens? the fire re-arises. And so it's like, we're kind of like firefighters, just like constantly having to put this thing out. Right? And that, that, that's a great metaphor, and he uses that metaphor, I think, because it's really easy to understand the metaphor of fire and cooling out. That's not, I mean, a little kid can understand that. But that's really the analogy that he makes. So his, uh, his suggestion is to put out these fires. And so where does he get this idea? There's actually quite an interesting story to this. The other term that's used here, is, it, it, which is probably more the better term, is cra- it, it, it's craving, but then there's what's called clinging and grasping. You've probably heard about clinging and grasping. And the word for that, for uh, clinging and grasping, is upadana. It's a Pali word, upadana, that the Buddha stole from the uh, Brahmanical tradition. It also is a word that has, uh, some of these Pali words have double meanings, uh, and this word has the double meaning, upadana. It means to cling and to grasp, but actually more accurately, and I think actually helps me better practice-wise, it means to fuel. It's like that fire in there. What's going on in there? The fire is clinging to the logs, and it's being fueled at the same time. So he's saying that this, this kind of hindrances in the mind and the suffering that we create in our mind and why we can't get it together, if you will, is because there's like clinging and then there's fueling. And there you are just shoveling gasoline on the fires of Upadana going, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time on this retreat. <laughs> well, what are you doing? You're, you're fueling it. And why does he steal this word? Upadana comes from the... Um, Back in the, uh, to just give you some history, because the history is actually quite interesting. First of all, just as a kind of public service announcement, the Buddha didn't come from the Hindu culture. Hinduism came after him. So people always say, well, Hinduism was the primary culture of the time of the Buddha. That's actually not true. That, it came actually much later. It was rooted in what's called Vedic Vedanta, Brahmanical texts. And do you know how the uh, Vedics and the Brahmanical texts, you know how those got invented? About 500 years before the Buddha, all the rich people, 
the sort of higher class, the Brahmanical people, and the caste system, the higher level people, were, were making and using a drug called Soma. And this drug called Soma was a drug, it was like an alcoholic mushroom tea. I actually bet it was pretty killer. <laughs> but, uh, and they would drink this alcohol mushroom tea and they would basically trip their brains out. And they made up all these stories about gods and all these things. They basically invented a religion around these psychedelic trips they were having, right? Into, and they had like one, of the, one of the primary gods um, was the god Agni. Agni was the god of fire, which represented the sun and the fire, and they worshipped this psychedelic creature that they made up. It's kind of like what religion does. They make up weird stories and believe in them. And they did that way back then. And so they would burn these, they would burn these sacrificial fires. And it was called, the sacrificial fires were called Upadana. The sacrificial fires of Upadana. And the Buddha comes on the scene and goes, you guys are out of your mind. And if you think about the analogy of fire, like if you think about like what, what, what's one of the problems in the world today, the world is actually on fire because of our own greed, hatred, and confusion. You know, so it's like the metaphor is really intense nowadays. I mean, the global destruction is, is kind of this, again, the way that we worship ideology and we worship things. And in, in, in the modern culture, we just worship like products and goods. But it's the same thing. So the Buddha shows up and he's like, oh my God, these people are crazy. They're making things up to worship and to believe in and they're just burning all these fires. And so he takes the word and flips it on his head and he takes the word from them and he goes, actually, what you want to do is you want to put these fires out. Because uh, he's saying that basically you're missing out on what's right in front of you. You're missing out on the life that you're living. You're missing out on the ground. You're investing all this energy and all this superstition, worshiping some god that you made up when you were tripping on drugs, which is probably actually why the fifth precept exists. There's actually a lot of theory on that. Like people say, well, how many drugs and why did the Buddha have the fifth precept? I mean, there wasn't like fentanyl on the streets of ancient India, but there was this Soma drug, and he knew that these drugs made people have crazy ideas and invent crazy religions and burn fires to worship gods that they made up. And so he was like really a big troublemaker. They did not like the Buddha at all. He was very, very unpopular because he was very critical and very, very um, skeptic and was very pointing out to the fact that you guys have got this whole life thing all wrong. What you ought to do is put those fires out. And so he makes that metaphor that to, to live the good life, to live the Dharma life, is a process of cooling and wanting to put these fires out. And he, he also makes the, um, the analogy that these, these are internal fires, that we have, these own, we have our own fires of, of greed, hatred, confusion. We have these fires of these hindrances that keep us from living. They keep us from living the life that we want to live. They're also sometimes called dead ends. They're dead ends because they don't go anywhere. Right? So that's where that word comes from. And I love that story because it's so uh, imaginative. Like I can totally imagine somebody showing up and being like, what are you doing? They're like, oh, we're, we're burning this fire to worship the god of Agni. Who's Agni? I haven't even seen this Agni guy. 
what are you guys doing? You need to stop it with this nonsense, right? And so then, because that was his message, of course, this is when people started to become attracted and he started to have followers and he started to have monks and the Dharma started to actually spread uh, because people probably were like, yeah, he's right about that. And so there's this metaphor for how we do this. So when you look at these hindrances, they're called nivaranas, and, I, and I, I'm really happy that the word hindrance is there. It's a good translation because it, really that's what it, they're doing. Is they're, they're not necessarily causing suffering because what they do sometimes, but they're, they're blocking us. And so the first two, there's five of them, and they kind of go and sets the first two. And the first two big ones are ones that you're probably very, very familiar with, craving and aversion, wanting and not wanting. Right? And so the other thing about the hindrances, I think that's important to point out, and the reason why I don't like to think of them as causes of suffering, because you know what? Sometimes when you're in the hindrances, you're enjoying the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. Sometimes we're craving for something and we're not suffering. We're actually having quite a fabulous time. Get that, you know what I mean? This is like, <laughs> this is the like, Sign language for craving. It should be anyway. Right? I do it. Yeah. So he's he's so we have to that that's why I think it's a better way to look at this because we would think, well the hindrances they cause suffering and they're bad or wrong. I'm just gonna stop doing that. It's like, oh really? You're just gonna stop craving and aversion, really? So it's not that they cause suffering and it's not that they're bad or they're wrong. It's not that kind of, we don't want to put them in that kind of frame. They just don't go anywhere. They don't do anything for you. Right? They are what they do. So you basically have wanting, uh, craving, what craving does is it just wants, it wants something that's not here to be here. It's that sitting here, wanting to attain or get or have something that you don't have now which kind of creates a bit of a disconnection. And again, the more we become, the problem is the mind, because craving actually, I, I, I can tell you from my experience, I mostly like it when I'm doing it. I'm thinking of things I'm gonna get and things I'm gonna do and how great it's gonna be when I get these things and do these things. It's not, I'm not suffering, actually. But, I'm, but what am I not doing? I'm not actually, I'm not being with my kids. I'm not enjoying the beautiful day. I'm not in the weather. I'm not actually here. It's like I kind of become hypnotized into this stuff. Right? So it's, it's dangerous. It's unsatisfying. You don't get anything out of it. Right? It's, it, it's destructive. Right? It's not supportive. It's not helpful to your sense of happiness and well-being although it promises you that it most certainly is. That's the problem with it. And so the longer, the more we become invested in whatever that narrative or that story is, the harder it is to get out. Which is why on the first day, I always try to encourage you, as soon as you notice you're lost, come back. Because the longer you let that play out, it's like, it's like a TV show, like you put on a Netflix show, it's like the longer you watch the episode, me and my wife do this really foolish thing, and I'm sure you do it too. 
We'll get to the end of the episode. We'll, well, let's just watch a little bit of the next one and see if it's good. <laughs> Have you ever done that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> and of course, what do they do in the last five seconds of every episode? They drop some crazy shit on you that you just have to find. I mean, they're so criminal. They're using the five hindrances against you. They really are. Good, oh, we got to find out. Well, let, let, let's just see where it goes. And then it's like another one. And then you've been there. Right? So it's kind of like that in, in the mind experience. So it's like, no, no, don't even, don't, even open the, don't even open the tab, man. You know? Don't even hit next episode. Skip intro. Don't do any of that. Right? You're laughing, you know, exactly. And you probably didn't hear, did you do it today at all? I'm sitting in here? Of course you did. Right, so again, we don't want to pathologize it. We're just realizing it's not... What is it keeping you from doing? It's keeping you from doing a whole lot of other things that you probably would rather be doing. So that craving uh, is trying to acquire or get or have something now. And the more invested I become in that, the stronger the craving gets. And the more right now it just kind of stinks. And that's that pathology of lack that I talk about. Right? We pathologize that. Lacking, 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 lacking. Right, so we don't want to encourage that. Don't fuel that. Right, but we do. We we so we there is that clinging craving. But I actually notice for myself experientially what's more happening is I'm fueling it. Right? I'm I'm supporting it with attention, with interest, with believing whatever it's promising me that it's never going to give me ever once. I mean, have you ever once in your life gotten something that when you got it, you're like, I'm good. I'm all done. But the next thing, you'll be like, oh, no, but this, this is the thing. And aversion is just the other side of the coin. It's just, you know, pain in the knee, uh, unpleasant feeling in the body, difficult emotions, uh, getting revisited by some story, something that happened recently, years ago. I mean, sometimes on retreat, I'll, I'll get visited by something that happened 25 years ago that I'm upset about. I'll just get super bummed out. Like, oh, man. It's like, that was 25 years ago. There's no evidence at all in my direct experience. Right? But we, we again, so we, we also could use the analogy of falling asleep and waking up because... That's really the word that the Buddha uses to describe his experience. If he would say, I'm awake, which is why we get this word bo, uh, Buddha. Buddha comes from the Pali word Bodhi, which means to be awake. And so when, when people would ask him, what's up with you, man? He would just say, I'm awake. He wouldn't, say, he wouldn't say, I'm enlightened. He wouldn't say, I understand the ultimate nature of reality. He didn't say a lot of the things that Buddhism kind of describes. He just basically said, I'm awake. I see what's going on here. And I am not going to engage in that monkey business. Right? That's really what we're doing. So you wake up and you fall asleep and you wake up. And what you want to do is you just want to, be, you want to just get the tree leaning in the awake direction so that you're awake more than you're asleep. And that, that happens slowly over time. So you have these craving and aversions. Uh, and then the other one, the next set is lethargy and uh, restlessness. 
sometimes sloth and torpor, but I don't like to use words that I don't use in real life. Like I never ever say sloth and torpor, unless I'm talking about the hindrance, so I just kind of put that aside politely. But really what is it, it's that lethargy and that restlessness. It's lethargy is kind of a dullness in the mind. Uh, what it, what, so what does it do? It dulls the mind and it creates a sense of disinterest. You maybe had that here. It's like after you know you've been sitting in this room a lot today. You're, after a while, you're like, there's just nothing interesting in this yard at all. I'm, I, you know what I mean? Like there's just nothing around at all that I can see that's at all interesting. And the mind dulls out. It kind of numbs out. It brings the energy down. Uh, it gets into kind of dullness, disinterest, lethargy. That's what it does. And so it, it keeps us. In some ways, sometimes we can even fuel that, too. The other one is restlessness and worry. But probably, I would say, probably best to just call this anxiety. Because anxiety is a word that, I'm sure you know, people use the word, it's an overly used word. I mean, we've even pathologized that. I think there's actually four different kinds of anxiety disorders now. Generalized anxiety. I'm like... Yeah, I have generalized anxiety. I generally feel anxious. Like, why do I have to get a diagnosis for that? Who does, is anybody here who doesn't have generalized anxiety? <laughs> like, if you don't have generalized anxiety, I'd be worried about you, right? So that's, again, the feature of the way that we pathologize the mind experience in our culture. So anxiety, it's that restlessness, it's that uneasiness, what does it do? It unsettles and it kind of disperses. So it kind of, kind of spreads the attention out. We feel totally disconnected. We feel totally dispersed. We feel totally unsettled. Uh, and it, it's a really hard one to work with because when you're in it, you're just like, even if you notice that you're like fully anxious, you're like, you kind of don't know what to do. You know, you kind of know you don't like it. So what do you do? You probably fuel it, so like worry. When I'm worried, I sometimes think to myself, I'm just not worrying enough about this. I need to worry harder, <laughs> figure this out. Just not worried enough. And for me, sometimes worry is so seductive because I feel like if I'm worried about something, I'm being responsible, <laughs> which is so insane. I'm like, I'm really being responsible about this because I'm totally... <laughs> You know what I mean? It's terrible. I'm a responsible person. I'm worried about everything all the time. And you should be too. Like people who aren't worried used to bug me. You ever meet those people? There's actually a word for people like that in the Pali Canon called a Pacheka Buddha. You've met some of these people. They're people who are just fine for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Have you met any of these people? They're just at ease. They, they, they embody all the qualities we talked about here for actually no dumb reason whatsoever. <laughs> they're just like, like, they're like, yeah, things are great and sometimes bad things happen, but you know, that's how it goes. They're just like, I used to, I actually have finally grown to appreciate those people, but they used to really bug me. I'm like, have you not been paying attention to anything ever at all? <laughs> you know, right? But there's a word for them, actually, the Buddha calls them, the Pacheka Buddha. They're people who are just awake just because they got lucky. I would imagine it's none of us, uh, or you wouldn't be here. Sorry. 
but maybe uh, you know some of these Pacheca Buddhas. And the last one um, that's really, I think, difficult to, to work with, and there's varying theories as to why, is doubt. Um, and it's more of a skeptical doubt, so it's a kind of twofold. It's, it's not like, like, we probably should have some doubts about things, so it's not trying to pathologize doubt in general. Doubt's actually kind of helpful. Actually, there's practices in Zen Buddhism that are all about doubt. But it's more that skeptical doubt of uh, doubting myself. I can't do it. It's actually really kind of about the practice and the Dharma. So it's either the Dharma doesn't work, so I have doubt in the practice working, or the Dharma does work, but it's not going to work for me, which is my favorite form of doubt. I'm like, yes, I totally believe that this is a good process, and I really, really think it's good and helpful, but I'm, but it's not going to work for me because I'm like, just like for whatever reason. You've probably seen some of this today. You're like, no, I like everything that's being offered here, but I'm just not, I'm just not going to be able to cut it, right? So that doubt, and they say, and there's varying degrees of theories on this, but it's really hard to work with doubt on its own turf. In fact, a lot of people say you actually have to work with doubt retroactively because when you're in it, it's just you're so convinced. Right? So sometimes, sometimes it's best to notice when the doubt dis- dissipates. And it's like, oh, when it's over, you can look back on it and go, wow, I was really, really in some doubt there. Fortunately for me, of all the hindrances, this one hasn't been too bad. Um, and, and from a Buddhist perspective, it's actually kind of identified as the most destructive force in the mind because um, doubt is the one hindrance that will actually get you to get in the car and drive away and just kind of abandon the whole endeavor. But like, you know what, this is just like, forget it. There's got to be an easier way to live. Right? And so you have to watch out for that one. So you have craving, aversion, restlessness, lethargy, and doubt. And then on the other side of it, so these are the things that are keeping us from being happy, from being content, from being well. And, and they're happening, and sometimes we like them. Um, they're, they're habituated. They, they've been around for a long time. They're not going to just go away. You can't switch them off. You can practice with them. You can recognize them. And so, probably no big surprise. So how do you do that? Well, that's where the awakening factors come in. Uh, and the awakening factors, um, the first one, probably no big surprise to any of us, is mindfulness. So there's kind of this cool thing that happens, and I mentioned this in group today, I think. Um, when you, you can take an obstacle, so if we think of the hindrances as an obstacle, is in my mind, when mindfulness is in my mind, I'm taking an obstacle and I'm turning it into an object. Now I'm aware. Now, now instead of being lost in the craving, I'm like, craving is in my mind. And I'm going to put down the gas can. Right? And as soon as mindfulness is aware of a craving or a hindrance in the mind, whatever the intensity of that hindrance is, it kind of dissipates a little bit. It kind of comes down. And then the mindfulness comes in and we go, okay. And then, then we have options. We have choices. We can use logic. We can use reason. We can use kindness. Mindfulness 
is really what gives us, is really what makes it a level playing field. Right? Without mindfulness, um, again, the hindrances kind of just run amok. Without mindfulness, we're just reacting to, to Vedna. We're re- reacting to pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings. Where without mindfulness, we are just kind of playing out the equipment that we've been given. There's actually a really great book on this that comes from a science perspective, written by Robert Wright called um, Why Buddhism is True. And he's, a, he's like this nerdy evolutionary psychologist professor from Rutgers University. He's not like a Buddhist guy at all. He's like, if you ever see him talk, he's like this total nerdy Northeastern dude, which makes me trust him more, actually, because you're like, if this guy is saying Buddhism works, then obviously it does. But he actually posits it really well. He says, he says the kind of uncomfortable position that we're in in a practice like this is, do I want to wake up to my mental afflictions or do I want to be ruled by them? And so with no mindfulness, we're ruled by them. They just kind of, they do what they do. The organism does what it was, what it was designed to do. And in the modern world, that can make a mess of one's life. Or we can wake up to them and have to deal with their painful fact that they're there. So either way, there's going to be some discomfort. Ajahn Chah, also the Thai forest master, mm-hmm. says this best. He says there's, there's the kind of, two kinds of suffering. There's suffering that leads to more suffering. And then there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, which is like just waking up to the suffering and waking up to the mind and waking up to these mental afflictions and being like, okay, like, I'm going to have to do something about this. And really, the, at the end of the day, the kind of uh, prerequisite for all of this is, and the Buddha is very clear about this, is the mind is going to have to be trained. You're going to have to train it. You know? It's like getting, you know, getting a pickle from the pound. You know? It's like when you first start practicing the mind, let's be honest, maybe it was like that yesterday, it is all over the place. You have an untrained rescue dog, you know, and if you want it, you have to train it. And that just takes work and that takes effort and that takes a lot of things and that's just what it's going to come down to. But you can do it. So mindfulness really is allows us to take these obstacles uh, and turn them into objects of practice. Okay, now that I know that I have craving in my mind, I can work with it. I can practice with it. I can work with it contemplatively. I can maybe bring kindness to it, or maybe I can notice areas of my body that are more comfortable. So, you're, so when you're doing that, now you're really actually doing the second awakening factor, which is usually, which is dhamma vichaya, which usually translates as investigation, which isn't a terrible word, discrimination, discriminatory awareness. But those... Our, those terms are kind of too analytical to some degree. It always sounds like a CSI crime show. I'm going to investigate my experience. It's like, well, maybe not that. But it, it's an inquiry. Uh, actually, Stephen Batchelor, who's somebody that I work with a lot, uh, uses the word wonder, which I always thought was interesting. Like, Kind of an awe. Like, hmm, what is this mind doing after all? What, what is my mind up to right now? Uh, also, some people would even say that the second awakening factor is the practice of Vipassana. It's insight. It's inward seeing. 
into the experience. And so when we start to have the awakening factors coming online, then the, the whole approach, the whole way we're acclimated to our direct experience, the whole paradigm actually changes quite a bit. So mindfulness remembers to recognize the present moment experience. It remembers, is able to look at functions of mind, patterns of cognition for what they are. They're just patterns. They're just, they're things that are happening in the, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And that's a, I mean, don't underestimate that. If you can do that, that's like, that means you have like really good, you know, contemplative analytical tools. Like most people can't do that. Most people, if you said, well, sit down and watch your mind and tell me what it's doing, they're going, oh, well, they, they, would think, they, they would think that was the dumbest thing ever. Like, what do you mean, sit down and look at my mind? What are you talking about? Like, so don't underestimate the value of the fact that you actually, and this is why mindfulness is so popular in our culture, and especially in cognitive science, is they're really like, you can watch the thing do what it does. That's no small thing. Right? And so that's really the whole point of really the Buddhist meditation system is that you can, you know, sit, you can still, you can do what you've been doing, you know, how you do it, it's kind of hard to describe, but you can see what's going on and you can make adjustments, you can relate to it differently. You kind of can get involved, which is why I don't like this and I said this in group, I think mindfulness is too much focus on the witnessing, on the just kind of watching. At some point, we really need to be, and probably more quickly than not, we need to kind of get involved with the process. And so, interestingly enough, the next awakening factor is back to where I started, is courage, virya. Courage, energy, effort, that when there's mindfulness and there's inquiry or curiosity or interest, all these words work, then there starts to be some courage in the system. Like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to change the dynamic here. I'm going to change the way things are going down for me. And then that brings joy or enjoyment, which brings contentment, which brings steadiness, which brings equanimity. And so these are all the factors of mind that support us being awake. Right? And so it, all, it starts with mindfulness, it ends with equanimity. But you notice these probably too. You might notice moments where there's, where there's mindfulness, there's some interest, there's some energy, there's some effort, there's some courage, right? There's a bit of joy. And they might be pretty subtle, but to just kind of notice when those qualities might be present. Because they're very, very important. And when you uh, are in those kinds of experiences, the hindrances are nowhere to be found. So what you're trying to do, again, back to the kind of uh, endeavor, is that you really are trying to, so with mindfulness, we want to recognize and overcome these hindrances. We want to see them. So if you're seeing hindrances in your mind, that's actually really good. Uh, there's a teacher named Sayad Tejaniya, his whole practice is built on this. He's always happy for you when you see this. He's like, oh, you're seeing the hindrances, good work. So, so you know, don't be bummed out. Don't, you know, if you're seeing these kind of destructive, afflictive hindrances, if you're, you, you want to see them. 
Because you don't want them to be there and not see them. Right? So that's part of, I think, the way we want to flip. This is why the metta is so important. It's even to be kind or friendly to the hindrances. Right? And the Buddha spends so much time talking about them because he's trying to let you know they're probably going to be hanging around a lot. Right? They're not these occasional events. Every once in a while you get struck into the five hindrances. Like if you take a 30-minute sit, you probably go through all five a handful of times. So these things are happening really, really quickly. So mindfulness, again, when there's a little bit of awareness, there's a little bit of watching, we're starting to notice them catch on the spark of the flame. We're noticing that we get pulled into them, and then we can just practice with them. We can practice with these kinds of experiences. And the other thing, I'm running out of time, and I'm actually going to tee myself up for tomorrow night. Uh, talk about the Brahma Vihara heart. Uh, but the other way, so, some, so one of the questions that I get a lot or that you'll get is people will say, well, where do the Brahma Viharas fit? And do they even fit in the Satipatthana Sutta? Because they're not in there. You know, where do these kindness and compassion that I'm talking about a lot, where are they in the mindfulness teachings? Where they fit, actually, and where they stand is they're kind of a companion set to the awakening factors. So the awakening factors, uh, you know, they liberate, they clarify, they wake the mind up, but so do the Brahma-viharas, kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. Two of the Brahma-viharas are actually two awakening factors, joy and equanimity. So they're in there, and I think the mind, metta is in the mindfulness. So it's all, so you, and I'll talk about this, I'll, I'll unpack these tomorrow night, because it's just another methodology, another way to talk about these things. So again, it's, again, it's recognizing the hindrances. And here's a, just a little hint. You cannot use any of the hindrances to overcome any of the other hindrances. So watch out for that, because you'll try to use aversion to get rid of the craving. You're like, I'll just want this to go away. <laughs> Bat it right out of here. So you can't do that. That's like, I know you're looking for the cheat code. There's no cheat code. Like, you can't use hindrances to overcome hindrances. So we have to use awakening factors. Or we can use Brahma Viharas. And a lot of times, just bringing mindfulness and a bit of kindness to the hindrance experience, a lot of times it's enough to just to overcome. Right? And it happens like that. You can be caught up in a hindrance for like, you can have a whole episode eight minutes in and you can have mindfulness, a little bit of metta, a little bit of recognition, a little bit of spreading the awareness out and the hindrance is gone. Just like that. And when you start to see these little victories, these little Dharma victories, then you start to realize, oh, okay, this is, this is the direction, this is the path actually, this is, go that way. Awakening factors go that way, the hindrances go that way, and you're kind of in every moment in the middle of these two kind of dichotomies. The last thing I want to read is this poem again that will set me up for tomorrow night, which comes from the Tibetan tradition, uh, which talks about, so, so we do cultivate, so when we talk about developing, so if we're going to recognize and overcome the hindrances, then we want to develop or cultivate and maintain the awakening factors. So that's really how that whole system works. Right? And this is a bit of, again, kind of a moment-to-moment -moment endeavor. 
Uh, and the, also, we want to cultivate and maintain the Brahmaviharas. And the way that it's talked about in cultivation, it says, out of the soil of metta, out of the soil of friendliness, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by tears of joy, sheltered beneath the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. I give us a really nice picture for how we can work with these. And I'll, I'll talk tomorrow night more about these, um, the way you can use the Brahma Viharas in a companion to the awakening factors. So I applaud your courage today. Uh, thank you for your kind attention. And we'll just sit for a few moments. <laughs>